Hanukkah. 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 You're listening to Hanukkah Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Paige Willett and Adesh Nakas, Borewadme Ndao. I'm your host, Paige Willett, CPN tribal member and employee. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate us. Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer joins us for this episode. She's an American Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental and Forest Biology, as well as the Director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, both at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in botany, as well as a doctorate in plant ecology, most of her academic research focusing on mosses. As a citizen Potawatomi Nation tribal member and descendant of the View and Johnson families, Kimmerer believes an indigenous approach and knowledge set can lead the way to solve global problems such as climate change. In 2013, she released her second novel, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, which became a New York Times bestseller. Kimmerer was also named a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship from the MacArthur Foundation in 2022. We discussed the decade anniversary of the book's publication, future plans in light of her most recent honor, and the inspirations and aspirations surrounding her work, including Potawatomi culture and her sepian ancestry. Um, my grandfather's experience um, have always been really important in our family, and we have a, a small piece of land in, in Shawnee that is a legacy from him, of course. I think that our family stories and our collective Potawatomi stories have really been a, a big influence my whole life and particularly as an environmental writer and uh, scientist. How long have you been studying biology, ecology, the environment? I cannot remember a time when I wasn't interested in these things. From the time I was a little girl, um, I wanted to wander around in the woods and always curious and delighted about the plant world and birds and bugs and everyone. And I had the great good fortune of, of growing up in the country and um, in here in the northern forests, which of course are, you know, part of our, of our heritage. I live here today in Haudenosaunee territory, but, you know, this is dish with one spoon territory. It's the same uh, biome, the same ecosystems as as our original homelands as well. So I feel deeply at home here um, for for many reasons. But I was born a botanist. I think those plants reached out and kind of tugged on my sleeve from from the very beginning. So that, that path was set for me pretty early. As a field of academic study, uh, why do you feel like it's been so satisfying for you for so many years now um, as an Indigenous person, something to sort of, you know, base your life around? I really reflect on my own journey as a scientist who is not only trained in Western botanical and ecological sciences, 
but really have been a lifelong student of our traditional teachings wherever I've been able to learn them. And I'm so grateful for people who have shared with me. But I reflect on the fact that my grandfather, as a survivor of the Carlisle Indian School, where his way of knowing our traditional ecological knowledge was stripped away. And so it has been, in a sense, growing from that story, growing from that painful history, a personal mission to bring Western science and indigenous science together really for our shared concerns of, of how it is that we care for, for, for land. And so again, my Potawatomi history has been a major influence in, in my work. And so at our Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, our real goal is, is to combat the erasure of indigenous knowledge and in fact, bring it into partnership with Western science. And um, we've been doing that with, with the research that we do, with supporting Native uh, students, with supporting a Native research agenda, and of course, with my writing and teaching as well. Do you feel like those partnerships have been growing over the last, you know, decade or so? Oh my gosh, yes. I've been at this for a long time, <laughs> swimming upstream, as it were. Um, to bring awareness to Indigenous knowledge. And I look at what is, you know, for me, simply almost unbelievable that it was just a few months ago that the White House issued a policy that traditional ecological knowledge must be elevated in all federal land management decision-making. Honestly, Paige, I never would have thought that I would see that happen. You know, there are lots of complexities and and cautions around the embrace of, of indigenous knowledge, but the very fact that it's being recognized as an important partner is huge. And I'm so excited for the research and the policy making that lies ahead when our people actually have a voice in caring for our homeland as well we should. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's huge um, to be finally, yeah, recognized at that level. Um, it seems like a, a lot of things having to do with Native and Indigenous peoples, you know, it's like, oh, well, we've known this all along and just nobody listening. And, you know, I credit a, a long line of folks who have been doing this work for, for, for years. And now we're to a place where it feels like we have a critical mass of indigenous scientists, policymakers, thinkers, philosophers who are who are influencing this. The first edition of Braiding Sweetgrass, your best-selling book, came out a decade ago this year. How would you describe the impact of your life over the last decade since that book came out? No one is more surprised than I about the impact that that book has had and continues to grow. You know, I think the last I heard, it was a million and a half copies and translated into, I don't know, half a dozen different languages. Um, what this says to me is that there is a real longing in the public to heal our relationship with land. There's a real longing for justice, I think, around indigenous lands. 
And so to me, that's a really hopeful sign that so many people are picking up this book, especially because, again, as my publisher reports, it's a small, not-for-profit, independent publisher, right, where it's, there's not a lot of marketing about it. What's happening is the book is moving through the world by individual people gifting it to others because they say, well, this is important. I think, I think we all need to be thinking about these things. And, you know, that's the way sweetgrass is passed around too. You know, it, it doesn't go by wind blow and seed. It goes hand to hand of, of, of people giving a little transplant to the next so it can be nurtured and, and, and spread. So that coincidence, if you will, between how the book spreads and how the plant spreads is, feels just right to me. But Paige, the outpouring of letters and projects that are emerging from people who are influenced by Indigenous thought, as expressed in, in Breeding Sweetgrass, is so fulfilling. People are starting schools and farms and gardens and films and, you know, educational efforts. Um, so it feels like a part of a... Uh, a larger movement toward Indigenous land justice. I feel like just talking with people who have read the book, Native and non-Native, it's like, yeah, they can't help. But to just tell someone else, oh my gosh, you have to read this. Yeah, it's like a, a storyteller's dream come true when the story seems to activate people toward thinking in a new way and imagining a different future. And when that future is informed by indigenous teachings, by our, our really ancient ways, that's really gratifying as well. That's why I think of it as kind of an act of remembering. It's a collective kind of remembering of who we could be and who we should be in relationship to the land. You've been receiving feedback on the book for many years now. And what do you feel like are a couple of major points from it that people sort of um, return to again and again, or, or a couple of points that really stick with them long after they've read it? First of all, for non-Native readers, I would say, is kind of a gratitude. It, it is gratitude for bringing forward another way of being for, for illuminating the indigenous worldview, which has been so erased from most of our educational systems and, and certainly public information. So folks being more aware of indigenous science and the, and the wisdom attached to it is something that I hear a great deal. But perhaps more importantly than that is that I think of breeding sweetgrass as a call to action. It's an invitation to say, well, if you see the world as gift, if you're grateful for the gifts of, of Shkokmikwe, of Mother Earth, then what are you going to do about it? And it is an invitation into reciprocity to consider ourselves not just as takers from the land, but as givers to the land. And it, it's a very explicit invitation to think about what is it that you have to give. And that's why I think we're seeing gardens and music and school programs and plays and books and poems and, and um, environmental actions uh, that are inspired by it, because that's what it's asking to say. So what are you going to do? 
it feels important to me not to dictate to people, well, this is what you should do, rather than invite people to say, what do you love too much to lose and how will you defend it? Did you sort of have that idea while you were writing it for it to just be this great source of inspiration? Yes. Um, You know, when I look back at my original notes as I was conceiving the book, it was so long ago now, um, you know, I, I thought about the fact that what we are really in need of is healing, not only land, but healing our relationship to land. And then I look at our Potawatomi values and our Potawatomi teachings and say, they are medicine. They are the medicine that keeps us as people resilient and growing and connected to to land and might that not be the medicine that could help heal relationships to to land so yeah i in my early notebooks i write i want this book to be medicine it's fine to want something but i'm i'm so grateful that people have been receptive to that medicine and then begin making their own medicine and sharing it widely uh, metaphorically speaking You were recently named a MacArthur Fellow as well. Uh, Tell me more about the process of receiving the award and how that came about. It was totally unexpected. Whoever even dreams of such a thing? Now I realize that I kept getting these emails from the MacArthur Foundation, and I I just, I'm so busy, I I didn't even answer them, Um, because they just said, oh, you know, get in contact with us, and finally, they called and said, could we make a phone appointment with you? Sure, whatever. (laughs) So, I was actually squeezing that appointment in as I was driving to a meeting, when they told me what they wanted, let me just say I had to pull over to the side of the road as I cried. Um, and the fact that you can't apply for a MacArthur, you know, the fact that it's bestowed on you, to me, it, it was really affirming in that it meant that somebody has been paying attention. Somebody sees the work and wants to invite more of that. To me, that's the wonderful power of, of the word is it's, it's, as they say, not recognition for what you have done, but an affirmation to say, please do more. Um, do, do what you feel called to. It's liberating, for sure, to have that capacity, but it's also, I feel deeply responsible to that award and to the opportunity that's been given me. It makes me reflect on so many other people who are deserving of that kind of recognition and and deserving of a chance to bring their gifts to the world. It's humbling in that way as, as, as well. It's given me much to think about as I consider how best to use this gift. What have you been thinking about since you were, since you were notified? Well, one of the first things is that I've been working on another book. And because of my work as, as, as a professor, as a researcher, as a speaker, I just, I haven't given it the time that it needs to, to come into the world. And so the MacArthur is for me a kind of affirmation to say, give yourself the time, give yourself the time to create this, this new book, which is very deeply grounded in our traditional stories 
as well as our traditional science. Um, that's one of my first missions with, with MacArthur, is to really let those that book live. But also, I have been working and thinking for some years with others about the Potawatomi Plant Protection Network, which is an idea that we brought forth at a gathering. And I'm really interested to think about how I could use the MacArthur Award as a lever, as a vehicle for protecting our plant knowledge and our and our and our plants, particularly in a time of climate change. A lot of our plants are threatened by climate change. And how could we function as a Potawatomi nation from people in the south to people in the north to help our plants move, to share plant knowledge, to create uh, reserves, cultural plant reserves. So that's something that I um, would really like to convene people around to think together of, of how we might bring together Potawatomi knowledge, botanical knowledge, and, and do right by protecting our plant relatives. What do you see as the big goals for that network? There are a lot of ways that we might protect plants and plant knowledge, but one of the ways that we might think about doing that would be to create a cultural plant preserve in the homeland. It's kind of a land justice proposition to say that how might we collectively work together to create a, a refuge, a sanctuary for, for plants to be someplace in the homelands. And then we create a place where people from all the Potawatomi nations could come together to share knowledge, to learn from each other, much in the same way that, that we have been working together to revitalize Potawatomi language. Could we build on that experience and those partnerships to revitalize our cultural plant knowledge as well? So I have to ask, what is your next book going to be about? Well, broadly speaking, it's going to be about, about the personhood of plants. You know, in our oldest teachings, we know that the plants are not natural resources. They're our relatives. They're our teachers. And you and I, as Potawatomi people, are embedded in that kind of thinking, right? Um, but the rest of the world just thinks about plants as natural resources or, or objects or landscape or something. My hope is, is to really awaken for my readers the fact that plants themselves have culture. Plants are leaders. Plants are teachers. And all of that contributes to understanding um, the new rights of nature movement. So that once we really feel deeply the personhood of other plants, then the leap toward the rights of nature becomes almost intuitive. And, and that's what I'm really striving for. It's a, a combination of drawing on our traditional teachings and some of the new sciences about um, plant intelligence and the roles of plants in, in healing the land. You have had such an interesting career sort of bringing those two together, you know, knowing all of the 
Potawatomi and Anishinaabe culture that you do and ways of thinking, but then also, you know, all of the science and melding those two together, do you feel like that is the future of accomplishing all of these goals too, is the merger of those two things? I do think of them working in partnership with one another, not not becoming the same thing because the worldview of Indigenous knowledge and the worldview of Western science are, are profoundly different. But what I really like to imagine is how could the values, the ethics, uh, the spirituality of, of traditional ecological knowledge guide the tools of science? so that those tools are used ethically, so that we can step away from the extractive industrial Western worldview and embrace the, the indigenous teachings of respect, reciprocity, responsibility, reverence for the land, and use them in partnership with, with one another. And, and that really is my goal as well. But I, I also have to say, in all honesty, I am just a beginner. And learning all of those ways. When I look at the knowledge that our, our traditional knowledge holders today have, and certainly that our ancestors have had, you know, I, I, I look at that with such awe and humility and, and know that, you know, I feel like I'm listening for the echoes of that knowledge and honoring all of the teachers who certainly uh, know far more than I do. How do you keep yourself learning? in your day-to-day? Well, I certainly read a lot. I, I listen a lot. And in terms of listening to the natural world and learning from the natural world, that is a daily practice. You know, I, I, I can't go out in, in the woods or, or, or the field without being amazed, like, what are you doing? How creative, how creative is the land? Um, and, and thinking about the amazing solutions that are right there, you know, that, that plants and, and animals and soil and mountains have to teach us. Um, so there's that, which it's a joyful kind of curiosity that it always keeps me learning. I also um, try to always be learning from the language, learning new words and, and the stories and the concepts behind those, those words, um, sort of greedy for, for, those, for those language lessons and cultural teachings where, where I can uh, find them. What do you think are some of the biggest takeaways that tribal members who get reconnected with the land sort of experience, either on a cultural level or, you know, on an emotional level? For me, the land is a teacher. The land is like a library of knowledge, and it feels like there is deep memory in the land of, and a willingness to teach us and care for us. Um, reconnecting with our landscapes, particularly our original homelands, um, puts us in contact with the teachings of the land. When you think about the fact that our language is rooted in the land, that our spirituality is rooted in the land, that our history is there, and therefore so is our future. Reconnecting with the land for me is a really profound way of connecting with our culture, with our ancestors. 
our responsibilities to the future. It isn't just about looking backwards and celebrating who we are. It's saying, let's take the gifts of who we are and create a, a vibrant cultural future for ourselves. And we can't do that without protecting the land. Without the land, we are, are lonely. Um, without the land, we don't have our, our teacher in our, in our foundation. Do you see that vibrant cultural future in your students as well? Oh, my gosh, I sure do. I feel so lucky every day to work with my amazing Indigenous graduates who are working in in their communities to safeguard land and language as well. Yeah, I'm so excited for the paths that they will create into the future. Find out more about Dr. Kimmerer's work and purchase her books, Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, at RobinWallKimmerer.com. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Please click the subscribe button and leave us a rating. And share the show with your family and friends. You can find CPN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Potawatomi. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Miigwech Nikanek, Mamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.